On this week's Bet Process Podcast, we do a postmortem on the Masters where Rufus tells us why his fades weren't so bad and how he still managed to do okay in the Masters. And we talk a little bit more about like what we learned from the golf standpoint. Then we get into some NBA stuff where we talk a lot about how the NBA playoffs and modeling the NBA playoffs is a lot different and a lot more challenging than the regular season. So with that, let's start the process. Bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to the post-masters edition of the Bet the Process podcast, where we'll talk about why Rufus was happy about all of his fades. Were you happy about all your fades, or were you not happy about them? No, I mean, I wasn't happy about Molinari. <laughs> well, I mean, he's just such a happy guy. You'd figure, like, he... he would, you know, like, I was happy that he won- that he did well, besides the fact that we were against him in so many matches. Well, the funny thing is I actually had a bet on him to win that I placed after the third round. It was the, I got it at plus 185, and, and I made the true place 184. So I was like, you know, so once in a value, huge value. But, but you were doing it also as a hedge, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have placed that bet. I mean, it was basically a break-even bet that was a nice hedge, which it did not, it didn't end up being a good hedge. But. Because I always look at the, like, outrights. What, tell me what some of the outrights that you bet in the Masters, like, after like the second day after the third day after the fourth day i I believe i had some jason day after the second day at 11 to 1 some dustin johnson some i mean that was uh, that was DraftKings, i believe right there i had some or at least they had an 11 to 1 as well some uh some more dj basically dj and jason day and then the one molinari but you know you know i should have did I don't know if you saw, I, I posted a, a tweet. I don't know if we want to get into this yet, but, but well, Spanky had tweeted at me about like giving away too much golf stuff and how if he were me, he would, wouldn't talk about it till retirement. And, and so I was like, I, I tweeted and basically said, you know, after Spanky pointed out some methodological flaws in my model, so I reran my sim and, and here's my new, here's what my new outrights are. And, and well, it ended up being, you know, spot on. Uh, you know, I picked the, you know, I put like Tiger 24%. At the time, I think the market was like 10%. Molinari, like 18%. The market was like, what, 7 or 8%. And then Cantlay, who had made the cut. I, I needed some guys that had made the cut by like a shot around the cut line. And I went with like Cantlay and Simpson just randomly as like, I'll put those up here. No, then everybody will know it's a joke. And yet, and then Cantlay went, you know, goes and shoots like, you know, seven under and then has puts himself in the mix on Sunday and Webb Simpson like shot eight under on, I mean, on Saturday. So. Like- Cantlay was winning like yeah. at one point, like pretty pretty far into it, right? Yeah, he so, had he had I mean, two bogeys maybe, down the stretch. Maybe, maybe we're saying that your fake simulations are better than your real simulations. The, they were this weekend. That, that that is very possible. <laughs> no, I you were talking about the spanky tweet about him give you giving up too much stuff, and so I think like my frustration with you and the Masters is this idea that 
you know, you want to do podcasts on it and you want to talk about it. You get super excited about it, but you don't want to give up very much, which I understand. But like in some respects, then we shouldn't even have a podcast at all if we're not worried about giving up anything. You're right. I mean, you make a good point there. It's so that's just frustrating for me because I want if you're really going to get excited and we're going to do a podcast on the masters, I want you to give up, give the good stuff, right? Like I want you to at least help our listeners. I feel like I did a little bit, you know, especially in that conversation with with Joe Pita, like where we actually kind of dove into some stuff, but. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I I think you do, but my point to you is like, I think it's fun that you tweeted out like what your sims were and what they ran were. And, And yeah, maybe someone can like reverse engineer your stuff, but that's like, that's just, it, they can I'm not too worried about that. Yeah, I know. It's like it's kind of a like I kind of felt like that spanky comment was just a dumb comment. It's like someone that actually doesn't build models like saying this because he's like feels like he's got some secret. Yeah, I think I've said this all along. You dominate the golf market and your stuff is amazing in golf. But I think if you give up one tournament, the Masters, which we know is very different than a lot it's of unique. other tournaments. Yeah, and I don't think you're giving up very much. And the reality is like you don't actually tell any of your rankings or your numbers, you tell isolated pieces of it. So no one could reconstruct what you're doing by the limited information you give. And and if they really think your stuff is that good that they're going to like trust the bits and pieces that they get from it. I'm just thinking that that's like a flawed process in itself. No, it's true. I I do. You know, I wonder if anybody actually bet based off of the, the, you know, made up sim that they probably did did really well. I did. No, not the made up sims. I I bet off the real sim. (laughs) Oh, you bet like, off the wrong one. No, I, yeah. did, did you find value on DJ as well? In retrospect, no, I think I bet on, was the value on day? I don't remember which it was, but I, I did bet on one or two of them based on what you what you said. It might have been day. I think I yeah. actually just wanted to get some get some more day. And the thing is, like, you know, day <laughs> would have won. He, there was one hole. What hole do you think dictated that day didn't win? You I'm trying to remember. This? Down the stretch. I mean, yeah, he it was played. down the stretch on day. On the stretch on day three. Oh, on day three? He was having a very good round. Like a very, sorry, a very even round. Like not a great round, not a terrible round. And he was on that par five. The, I think was it the 13? With, with the, wait, fi, wait, 15 or 13? The one with the, the, one with the water. The 15. one where you can reach into if you have a good, yeah, 15. Yeah. So he was on 15 and he um, like missed his tee shot. So then he had to lay up. And then I think that isn't that the Sergio hole where Sergio fell apart that time and hit the ball in the water like a yep. bunch of times. That's the Sergio so he hole. Did, he, he did the Sergio thing and then ended up double bogeying in that hole when that hole should easily be for him a birdie hole. Right? Yeah. And I, I didn't even see that's that. A, that was a three stroke swing. And because he was still so distraught about that, I think he ended up bogeying nine, uh, 18. And I remember yeah. thinking at that moment, like, this is going to be how he loses because of this. And it was like, it was kind of sad. And obviously in retrospect, the narrative is, is what it is. But day, day, I think had like, if you go back and think about it, they had a great chance to win that thing. Well, what's interesting to me is that day, I mean, you, you know, I had, I had a lot of matchups on him and, and I, I see what someone, you know, text me about what's going on. Like the day is being, you know, it looks like he's dead on the second, you know, lying down on the second fairway with the train getting medical attention. And I was like, Oh shit. I, and I, at that point I would have sold my Jason day bets for like 20 cents on the dollar easily. But you're always very worried about day retiring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
and yeah, he, 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 he literally, I mean, he's a hypochondriac. He's, he gets hurt doing, I mean, I don't know if you read, like his wife said something about how, Oh, this happens all the time. Like he does what should be the most mundane thing and ends up like in agonizing pain. Like that's Jason day. And I, I think I might need to set a policy going forward of like only betting on Jason Day, like maybe for outrights or for um, or, or basically long shot things where, you know, obviously, let's say there's a 5% chance he withdraws. That's not going to impact my numbers nearly as much. Um, you know, if it's a long shot thing, like where I'm betting with, you know, I, I need a much higher edge to bet an outright in general um, than with like a matchup where I'm like laying minus 200 and something. So, I mean, sometimes at least. So I feel like, you know, it's not something I actually account for in my numbers, like the probability of injury and withdrawal. And and maybe I should. Yeah. I mean, probably not. That seems pretty extreme at the core. I mean, there's a chance everybody withdraws. I mean, like back in a few years back, like this was a common concern when Tiger teed it up. Right. But then if, if it's a, if it's a chance, then isn't it the same for everyone? Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying I don't account for it at all. And so I'm saying maybe I should. Right, but if it's the same for everyone, then why should you account for it? Well, I should price it. You know, if I had priced Jason Day with a 5% chance of, of withdrawing or basically, I mean, let's be honest, if he was like eight over par, he probably would have withdrawn. So, yeah, I mean, there's like a, let's say there's a 5% chance of that. That affects my pricing for the matchups and for the, and for the outrights. Right, but what I'm saying is, that's when you're saying there's a higher chance for him than someone else. Yeah, I mean, there definitely so, is. Right. The, I'm, I thought you were saying that you think it's about the same for everyone. Oh, no, 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 no. I just mean a guy like Jason Day. Got it. He's unique. And then you mentioned Tiger. So you're saying that Tiger back in the day when he was still like, coming back from his injury, you should have also priced that in. Yeah, he had some withdrawals, and, and I didn't bet on some stuff. I mean, well, he was also harder to price just because he didn't have – nearly as much of a sample and, you, and it, it it felt like more like pricing a boxing match or something where like you know i i haven't seen the guy in like compete in three months so you don't know what the hell is going to happen in yeah. those cases that's why i don't bet on boxing by the way <laughs> well there's not enough data you're saying well there is data but i just don't have it you know if i was if, if i mean there it's it's you're right it's not out there but i mean they're if you were observing practices and stuff, you could gather that data. That there is information there. It's just not information that's publicly available. So you think like the training data, like literal training data, not training data. <laughs> that little <laughs> Seriously, that literal yeah. training data is is the most valuable thing for boxing. Jeff, you made a nerd joke. Yeah, it was a really good nerd joke. It was a subtle was. nerd joke. It was like I was at a uh, a bar on Sunday, I had just finished brunch and I was sitting at the bar watching the end of the masters. And there was a guy there that was like super know-it-all-y. He was talking about, so do you know if three people tie for second place in the masters, do they split the second place prize money or do they, what do they get? So, so they each get a third of the second place prize, a third of the third place prize and a third of the fourth place prize. As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's just like, as far as you're concerned, as far as you know, as far as I know, excuse me. That makes but a lot of sense. I mean, isn't it that way for Calcutta's? I mean, that's dead heat rules as well for, for betting. Like if you bet a top five with dead heat rules and, and you have, you know, there's set in seven players tie for fourth, you know, then you're getting like two seven, 
you know, you get two, one seventh of a fourth place, one seventh of a fifth place, and then five sevenths of a not winning. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's what I would have thought it was. But this guy swore to us in the bar. He's like, oh, no, I'm sure of this. It's actually they all get um, the second prize money. And we're like, oh, OK. Anyway, no. this guy was such, this guy was such a know-it-all, right? And he's being such a know-it-all. And what was funny about it was he, and I'm going to see if you get this joke, he was talking about Tiger's entourage. And he was like, oh, that woman there is the one that manages his restaurant. And I'm like, oh, Tiger's a restaurant? What's the name of it? And he goes, oh, it's a, you know, is it a Perkins? You not get that? No. <laughs> Perkins are these like dining restaurants in the South. And when all that stuff was going down with him, one of the things that was everyone was giving shit about was that he was dating a Perkins waitress. You remember those? Uh, no, I, I remember back when, when all that was going down. I remember there was a, I was, I was flying back from, from Vegas. Like, was this 2000? It must've been like 2008 or 2009 to, to DC. And I was in the Atlanta airport and saw one of these, like it was, it was when Tiger was still sponsored by Accenture. And, and you see a poster of Tiger up there in the bunker. And it's like, it's what happens. Ne- it's what you do next that counts. And and then the day later, Accenture dropped Tiger. I thought it was kind of funny. That is pretty funny. There's actually another great Perkins story too. Actually, no, it might be Waffle House. Do you know? Do you know who Matt Bush is? A baseball player. Yeah, Matt Bush is that guy that was like a can't miss prospect as a shortstop. And then a he became a pitcher. Yeah, but then he also went to jail. Oh, and I didn't his know tryout. His tryout was in a like a parking lot when he like came back when he was like, I think he's still either under like some sort of probation or whatever, but it was in the parking lot. He was working at like a waffle house or a Perkins or something like that. It's another random story. I mean, it's, it's like a Kurt Warner, huh? He was shelving groceries. <laughs> yeah. So what else are some other observations from the masters? Like from a retro, from a retro, it sounds like you did fine, right? You made a little bit of money. So- yeah, I, I what what did well for me were like the top five, top ten, top twenty bets. I mean, I had um, I had Cantlay and the basically I had Cantlay, Webb Simpson, Kepka, and Jason Day, um, and Poulter who didn't make it like in the, you know, in Rom um, up like in these sort of you know top ten, top five bets. Um, and yeah, I didn't hit the out hidden outright or anything, but um, the groups did pretty well as well and. Yeah, matchups were basically break even, given the fact that outside of the Molinari, like if you told me that Molinari, what tied for was it was he tied second? He finished it. Did he finish eleven or twelve under? No, he finished. I think he's eleven. Eleven, right? Because I did have two matchups. Yeah, two matchups that beat him. So yeah, um, yeah. So so if you told me he finished like you know, the top five and 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 that Matsuyama was like what tied for 40 something if i don't know not great um i i would have thought i did did awful um oh and if and if you'd said rory was like outside the top 20 um but yeah somehow things actually turned out okay like like casey doing poorly was great for me um same with sergio both of them missing the cut was huge and yeah um but below expectation but still you know, a win is a win, right? Anytime you leave one of those where you have that much money at stake and you win, do you feel like that's fine? 
Yes. And and every year, and this this is Masters that's not betting. How you felt, that's not how you felt after the Super Bowl. What do you mean? Oh, I felt... Well, you won oh, after the Super right, Bowl, right. but you felt like you should have won more. Because I felt the way the game played out, like, you know, yes. Um, but going into the Super Bowl every year and going into a major where I have a, a ton risked, you know, I've always, I'm always like, let's just, yeah, I set my expectation as like losing a certain amount. And then, so, so, so if I break even, I, I feel good about it generally, but it, it generally does reset too. So last year, I think I was on, we were on pace to be down like 500 grand after like the first, if you graded all our matchups, like after the first day or something like that. And then, you know, when, when we got it back up to like only minus 300 grand, it was it, the last day was considered, or, you know, it was, I had reset my expectations. And so it was like a good final day. Do right. you ever do that? Do, do you keep your expectations low that way? You generally are. I mean, you and I have a very different philosophy on betting. Like you are like you, you had that tweet about how when you're losing and you know, it might affect you, you don't even check scores. And that's like a, I really do think that's an amazing quality. And then a bunch of people followed up the tweets with some very interesting things, which I think they're they're right. Largely, like you waste time of your life by sweating games. Like there's nothing you can do. And so I think that's the difference between like a real professional sports better and not. Like if you are a real professional better with plus EV, you're not betting for the entertainment value. You're actually betting because you're you're gonna make money over the long haul and you want to do that. Right? That's the difference. And then and if you're well, just a yeah, I mean, spending time watching the game is just not in efficiently spent time in general. Just like, although, you know, I could say the same thing about like having Twitter on the background. Like, that's definitely not no, efficient. But, when, but, when I'm doing right. real work, that's... when I'm doing work that requires like actual focus, like building, like coding rather than like babysitting a model or something like that, I'm, I'm actually, I, I turn all that off and I, you know, I don't, I don't allow that to distract me and I don't have games on in the background. No, but what I'm saying is that, you know, at the core, that's the difference between you and the average better, because the average better is betting for entertainment value. So they want to be watching the game. They want to be it because they want that dopamine of doing that. Right. But you don't you don't need that. You're just doing this because you it's your job. It's a it's work. And like it might be fun work at some level for you, but it's still work. And so, you know, at the core, like you're it's just a different kind of thing. And and I, I think that's, I think that's fundamentally very interesting because, you know, when you think about the difference between the degenerate gamblers who are doing this for entertainment value and the pro real professional plus EV people, that's one of the subtle differences probably. Well, the great thing though about doing this for a living is that you can tell, you know, your girlfriend or whatever um, that you're working when you want to watch a game. Like, uh, yeah. uh, no, honey, I have, to, I, I have to be here watching this game. Yeah. At some point, they smart enough to figure that out. Though. That's true. That's true. Um. Anyway, so what else on the Masters? Anything else interesting? So here's the question. Like, I got into this a little bit on Twitter, but but Molinari, like you know, you know, in, he he obviously way outperformed my expectations, but um, I feel you know, was that luck? Was that skill? I mean, the guy was absolutely incredible. Um around the greens getting up and down. Like, I think someone said he, it was the f like 20 out of 20 times in the first like 60 holes of the tournament, which is just unreal. Um, and, and just, you watch him. He, he just, it's like every, every he, he was, he was like an Italian bot. Like you said, 
So, but but the point is, yes, he like he was he played really really well. He was. I don't feel like I felt lucky that he kind of dropped. Well, he he hit he splashed two balls on the back nine and which allowed me to win two matchups. I feel like I got a good break, you know, with that happening, but um, yeah. Well, he, he, I mean, you said, you, you said it in the podcast with Michael Collins, you said that Molinari was always a very steady guy, but then he added driving distance and he, it allowed him to win some majors. Well, the other thing, and, I don't think it's the driving. Well, the, yes, the driving distance definitely allowed him to win majors, but he was always a guy like a legitimately guy. Like the guy call, you you call him like Furyk. Well, yeah, I mean he he wasn't as much of a choke artist as Furyk, but he, I mean more like a Stricker or a Matt Kuchar, guys that generally you know. But do you think that like choking? Close. Do you think that choking is really like a predictive skill or non-skill? You know, I I do think it is. Um, I, I I do think there is a skill. The skill in it. The question is, with the data I have, can I measure it? And and that's the that's the issue. Um, but so the answer you talk to anybody. Not. I mean, the answer is it is a skill. The question is, can you identify? I know, it but and, yeah, and it's just like the hot hand. Well, the hot hand is real. There, there is there is such thing as a hot hand, but it's really, really, really hard to prove it one way or the other. Well, no, it turns out it's really easy. They just have been looking at it the wrong way. Did no, you? Not there's really this new paper that came out. Yeah, but there's been plenty of papers that have said there isn't. So, like, I have no, but they did reviewed any the other ones. The other ones that said there isn't, like afterwards, they're like, oh, you're right. I mean, the papers didn't talk, but I think the authors acknowledged that. The papers didn't talk? Not as as far as I know. Well, all right. But Um, but Molinari apparently hired like a sports psychologist a year or two ago. And and since then, he's been much better on Sundays under pressure. And Right. But this is also like, you're also in narrative career right now. Of course. Of course I am. But no, so but, but I guess like, the point is that Molinari played really well, and he had played really well in his last event before the match play, and he played really well in winning the Arnold Palmer. He played really poorly at the players, but the really, really good version of Molinari showed up. And my numbers, you know, thought that there was a chance that that happened, but there was also a chance that it didn't. But the, the, the thing that happened was it did. So, okay. So, what about guys like Justin Rose? and Rory McIlroy, who were arguably number one and two favorites. I mean, I know DJ was probably a little bit higher than Justin Rose, but a lot of people thought Justin Rose had a great chance. They they're you know just were irrelevant at this at this event. Um, Rory did his traditional make a big run on Sunday when he's completely out of contention, and like this this track record of Rory at the Masters is now becoming something. Do you do you think it's just random? Rory does, it seems like in majors, a lot of the time he gets off to a really bad start and has to fight back. And, and he's definitely the king of the sort of Sunday, um, like the backdoor top 20. Yeah. For sure. Um, but, but you know what's interesting is I thought that given the way the course played, it should have been perfect for him. The greens were, were soft and were holding. And, I mean, the course was soft. If you look at his wins, they generally come on soft courses. I mean, he's – when he won the U.S. Open at Congressional, there had been so much rain, and and um, it was it was gettable. And, and he tends to struggle when it when things are really um, when things are really fast, and and greens are are really really fast too. So dry isn't fast. That, isn't that kind of strange though? Because he grew up in Ireland, in Scotland, right? 
Ireland? Ireland, Northern Ireland. So in Northern Ireland, don't you think that the greens are probably really hard? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I mean, yeah, it's a different style of golf. Like he's a lot of links courses and, and he's won the British Open, but it does seem like he's more of an he's more of an American type golfer than he is a European type golfer. Interesting. Um, do you think would you take if you were in a uh, drafting pool for the PGA, would you take Tiger first because he's now the favorite? No, in that tournament, I would not. So it's like, do you think that you're going to be fading Tiger coming up because people have gone a little too far on him? Yeah, I'm sure I will. But I probably, you know, the question. I mean, the thing is that the outrights are not. Uh, a two-way market really so right but there'll probably be a bunch of matchups that you're going to be able to get value on tiger early on i mean tiger's like i'm sorry i would not say tiger. against tiger i mean right now just looking at my my scoring rankings and i feel okay giving this what is he wait he's not playing the heritage this week so it doesn't really matter anyway i don't think i mean i have him like number nine maybe interesting actually a little bit higher but but basically in that sort of group beyond like yeah Sort of behind the the top few, so I do think there probably will be some value betting against him, but we'll we'll see. It it all depends on what happens between now and then, but there really aren't that many events in between. So so yeah. here, here so what do you think of of these books in New Jersey, especially in their promos on Tiger? I think point uh, was it that Stars did uh, gave a hundred to one on Tiger before the event with the ten dollar limit, so ten dollars to win a thousand dollars. I know DraftKings did ten to one going into the final round, with and they took hundred dollar bets, maybe and and then FanDuel refunded every. They said they would refund everybody's entry fees, um, in one of their you know DFS contests if Tiger won, and that that was a million dollar buy-in. So they've literally refunded a million dollars, and I think assume that means that people get to keep the prize money too. So, um, so books took a bath on this. Do you think? Like there, there's obviously a lot of competition in New Jersey. Is this a race to the bottom? I mean, you know, the, the books numbers came out and they're, you know, they're not really hitting the revenue targets they want. Um, yeah. Are, are, they competing, the bottom. are they competing on the right things? Well, I mean, I don't know if you remember the panel that I did with, with those guys at Sloan talked about paying off the Alabama bets before Alabama actually won. And obviously, like Alabama did win, it didn't win, didn't win, and they ended up paying off a bet that didn't win, right? So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, like, and I was like, that seems like shitty business, essentially, is what I told them on the panel. And I, it's hard, you know, like these guys have to try to get customers. And if your point is that they should comp- be competing on other things like price or different types of products or whatnot. Maybe, maybe you can do that when the market becomes a bit more sophisticated. But right now, it's it is probably a lot of just straight up marketing and PR and being able to get in people's, you know, like give people like these, like almost like you know, free rolls to get them to to play at your you're, book. You're giving them a reason to sign up. Yeah. Um, speaking of books, and I, I we didn't mention this before, but um, w- did you follow the whole? drama with or the the feud between barstool and my bookie i mean i read a bunch of the tweets i assume it was like like portnoy made some bad and they basically like didn't pay him or something so portnoy before before the uva texas tech game portnoy like i guess tweeted that he wanted to he wanted to bet a quarter million on texas tech and it was basically free money and it was like the bet of a lifetime 
and but nobody would but he was in Minnesota for the game so he couldn't um you know do it anywhere in the US and and apparently you know um bet my bookie well anonym the their bet my bookie AG or whatever uh said that they would take his action but he didn't see that and then he went on this sort of Twitter um vendetta against that afterwards talking about how you know they don't pay their customers and then all these people tweeted out or t- I guess tweeted to him that they had had issues with drawing money, although most of them looked like it was for, it's because they had bonuses that were, uh, that hadn't fulfilled the rollover requirement, which is like, uh, you know, when, when you, when you get a bonus, when you sign up for a sports book, and I, I don't know if it's the same in the U S but I know in the offshore world, it's been this way for a long time. You have to roll it over a certain amount of times, meaning you have to actually bet that money. So if you, let's say it's a 10 X rollover, if you deposit $500, then you'd have to bet like $5,000 in total volume. Although apparently with my bookie, it required like, I don't know, it, somehow it, it ended up being a lot more than, than the requirements were seemed fairly onerous. Like only the, something like there was a difference between the p- bonus money bet and regular money bet. And I don't know, but anyway, yeah, it, it I think it, it, it made quite a, quite an impact on, on the, my, on my bookie because Barstool does have a huge following, but I think it, it it started the conversation a little bit about about my bookie and these offshore books that that have affiliate deals with companies in the United States. And Barstool had one of those. Um, the Pat McAfee Show podcast had one, and I think they Pat McAfee sp- severed ties with them. And I know during the football season, Pro Football Focus, they had, their picks were like they had a link to to my bookie, you know, which is this offshore sports book that is not legal in the United States. So I, I think it was good that it sort of started this conversation. Well, maybe. I mean, it, it's interesting to think about whether it will change people's behavior. I I personally don't have any problem with them having an affiliate deal with, you know, my bookie versus someone else, as long as my bookie is like above board. Just because they're offshore doesn't necessarily bother me. Do you have you heard? I had never heard anything bad about my bookie. Until this whole incident, it's not like it was Bovada who have no. It's heard Bovada. Things it's about. a square book. It, it's a very much a Bovada. But are they marketing doing the same kind of, Are That's, they doing the same kind of stuff that Bovada does? Well, it's it's meaning de- dealing dual lines, dual lines, like not honoring bets for certain in certain situations. Like, I mean, I've just heard a lot of bad stuff about Bovada, and I actually have never heard anything bad about my bookie until until this this whole incident. Well, Bovada's also been around for a long time. So uh, well, there's... My bookie is also... Much, were they something else and rebranded? Well, no, there's... there's. I mean, these affiliate deals are how they spread brand awareness. But my point, though, is that I think what they do is very predatory. I mean, the whole... Uh, the bonuses are... They're not easy to understand for a newbie. And the people that they are signing up are all newbies. In fact, if you read their terms and conditions, it, there's a clause that says, we only take bets from recreational betters if you are if you if we you know so they can basically um ban you for any reason yes exactly but but the whole point is they know that if someone signs up for five hundred dollars and has a bonus that they have to end up ends up having to bet like you know twenty five thousand dollars to be able to take make a withdrawal they know that that person is going to lose that money before they can withdraw anything and so right. it really is predatory when someone probably most people do not read those terms and conditions i think it's this is sort of a situation where I don't know. I mean, 
obviously there, there isn't going to be any regulation on this type of thing um, because it's an illegal site anyway. But I mean, it feels like it, it feels like they're the like my bookie feels like the like the equivalent of like the payday lender of the sports betting world in this regard. And and, and I'm not saying they're the only ones that do it, but but I think it, it is very predatory and it's it's the, the yeah it's predatory. I don't quite agree with you. I don't. The reason I don't think it's predatory is because like people are not losing money. Like they're not like charging you an egregious interest rate, right? Without you knowing, right? Which is the payday thing. They're basically just giving you a marketing bonus. They're giving you a bonus on your money. That but Jeff, but, but it it prohibits you from withdrawing any of the money, including the right the money. You know, let's say let's say I had okay. five hundred dollars okay. and I turned fair, it into three thousand dollars. That's a fair point. I can't point. withdraw that three thousand dollars until I've bet you know, fulfilled that, like, because once you accept that bonus and, and, and Jeff, if apparently if you lose, let's say you, you take, you know, you bet $500 and lose it all. If you de- redeposit, you still have to meet the original rollover requirement to be able to withdraw money. So it, it kind of is like, it's, it, it forces you into sort of servitude towards this rollover requirement where if people, I, I really believe that if people knew this existed, I mean, if they knew the way the rollover requirements worked, the vast majority of bettors would not accept that. They would say, no, I don't want the bonus because I want to be able to get my money out when I win. And I don't want to have to like, you know, over bet. You know, I, I don't want to have to make a ton of bets to to get paid. I actually don't think that people would, it would change people's behavior that much. Is there a way to figure, like, is there a way to sort of settle this? Because I have no a pretty strong opinion it. on this. I feel like, no. I, I mean, you could do some sort of AB experimentation, blah, blah, blah. But without that, you're definitely not going to get real survey results. And the problem is if I did a survey and said like book A offers this, book B offers this, which one would you, would you do? I mean, the, the people that follow me on Twitter are not the people that are betting at my bookie generally. Yeah. There's just no way to do this. The, the people that okay, are betting at my bookie are on. people that, you know, they sign up, for, people sign up for my bookie once they deposit money once that's it. They're, they're, my bookie is not going for the recurring customer. Right. Yeah. I understand your point. It's not, it's not a, it's not a good situation. It's not a good situation. I agree. I just think and they should people, be, sorry. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like, they should be held to some level of scrutiny or like some regulation at some level. And that's why like all these people that write about sports betting now are like, Oh no, I'm not going to write about an unregulated book, but they're kind of missing the forest for the trees. But at some point there is some, value to what they're saying because if you have some level of regulation then you can't do these types of things i would just say my like if my bookie wants to i don't know do things in a more ethical way be more like more prominently sort of mention the rollover requirement like on the front page say if you deposit this much money you have to bet this much to be able to withdraw like that's you know but the problem is they lose business if they do that or they you know they have to pay people if they do that generally. So, yep, I agree. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on. You you wanted to talk about the NBA or? Yeah, um, I'm I'm not an NBA better, Jeff, but I know you are. Were no. you so so? Apparently, unders went eight and zero on the first day of the playoffs. Yeah. Were you on any of those unders? Zion. Yeah, I was on one of the unders. I was on one of the games over, and then um, I had a second half over that didn't go. 
Um, and I had a second half. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, essentially, like, the playoffs are hard because the game does change a bunch. So a lot of the great statistics that you have for the regular season are um, less relevant. So um, the playoffs can be hard because there are situational things that happen. And yes, there are patterns to it every year, but you have to wonder if that's like small sample size or if those patterns mean anything. Like you're familiar with the zigzag theory, right? Yeah. The fact that a team, I guess if they're down, plays their stars more minutes and i mean because they there's this tendency toward regression towards a fit like 50 50 well basically it's like if i lose game one i'm likely gonna be if i if i'm favored by seven and i lose game one in that next game i'm likely gonna be favored by like eight or eight and a half because the thought is that i really need to win this game now and i lost the last game so and zigzag theory for a while was pretty interesting because it wasn't figured into the lines, but now it's definitely figured in the lines. And I think last year or two years ago, it was like, people were like, Oh, zigzag theory is dead now. And the odds makers lot in these situations. Like there's actually situations where teams down O two when they go back home in the first half, their first half line will be really skewed to what the game line is. So, you understand what I mean by that, right? Yeah. So, so, Jeff, we tend to, we both tend to be inclined to not believe in trends. I guess our prior is generally very skeptical. So, what do you believe? What makes the zigzag theory legitimate in your mind, or is it legitimate? Do you think it, it's a small sample size, or I mean, I guess it's not small anymore. But what do you I, think? I, I mean, honestly, like, I don't know. I think that there was quite a bit of like evidence that there was such thing as a the zigzag theory for a while in the last couple of years it's disappeared or it's disappeared or the impact has dampened a little bit um and Why? so it's what is the fundamental cause of it well i don't think you know what the fundamental cause of it if you knew what the fundamental cause of it you it, you could determine whether you, it was real or not right like that's that's the key to a lot that's the problem with all of these trends right is that to really understand it, you would have to like isolate different things and then test like each of them for their relevance and, you know, just do real good analytics work. Um, and you might be able to isolate what the reason is. And then you could see like, does that, is that really meaningful? Like, do people like, just like you said, do, do people play their starters more? Like one of the thought is that there's just more effort. So how would you actually like figure out and measure effort from an analytical standpoint? Well, so I'm glad you mentioned effort because I feel like, you know, handicapping the NBA is very different in the postseason than it is during the regular season, correct? And I'm guessing it's not just because it's not just the rotations. It's not just the fact that the stars are playing 40 plus minutes a game. It, you know, so if you can figure out, I would think it's almost the same thing, right? Being able to quantify the fact that players are giving more effort during the postseason than, than during the regular season. Yeah, I definitely think there's some level of effort. There's some level of like pace being different. There's some level of there's also really interesting thing where teams can game plan for each other knowing that they, you know, they have a fair amount of time to game plan for each other and they play, you know, six, seven, five, six, seven games against each other in a row. 
So there's a familiarity. Like another, like typically, the the totals drop throughout the round throughout the series. So like game one total, it should probably should almost always be the highest total that you see in that series because as the teams know each other, it tends to impact, you know, defense being better and offense being worse um, throughout the series. Interesting. Wouldn't wouldn't the sort of familiar because it, during the regular season they're playing you know it's just one offs a bunch of one offs whereas you have a seven game series wouldn't that sort of argue against the zigzag theory because let's say a team has you know wins the first game you know maybe it's a good matchup for them they they were able to exploit a particular matchup um, or is it more the fact that the opponent wasn't expecting well, so, that so them that, to exploit that and so now that they compensate for this but. That's a fair that's a fair question, right? Which is that you know, like today, for example, Philly and Brooklyn played, and Brooklyn beat um Philly in game one and beat them soundly. And one of the reasons they beat them so soundly was three point variance because I think the the um it was just a huge disparity in three point variance. But also there's this thought that, you know, Brooklyn has these guards that are just super quick and Philly has no guys that that really they don't have good guys to guard these guys. They used to have Robert Covington would guard these guys and it's just hard for them to guard these guys. So like maybe that was a, was a matchup problem. Right. And so I think the line went up to all the way, I think in some places it went up to nine, it was like eight and a half. Um, so it went up based on sort of zigzag theory, but then you wonder in that situation, like Preston and I were talking about it. We're like, you know, is it, it, it has it overreacted? And and his theory, his thought was like, yes, it ha- had overreacted some. And if it got to nine, he was for sure going to take Brooklyn. Um, now, what ended up happening is that Philly basically was only up by one at halftime, and it looked like, yeah, I mean, this is a bad matchup for them. But then all of a sudden, like Philly, like woke up and just blew them out in the in the second half. So. You know, it's hard to say whether this stuff means anything at all in terms of 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 whatnot, but I do think that's what makes the NBA playoffs really fun and interesting to bet because there are some things I think that analytics you would have a heart like you could build a perfect model based on like normal basketball stats and whatnot, and I would like say I would look at it and say like you know what this this is probably not relevant right now. And there's not very many situations in sports where I would ever feel that way. I would almost always like lean towards the model, but the NBA playoffs has so many nuances and so many differences that it's, it's, it's difficult. And like knowing a bit more about the sort of like, you know, not narrative, but anecdotal information that might be relevant is, is, you know, the on court stuff that you watch and listening to some of these really smart basketball guys who are like, you know, like this, this one team is dead now because they've just figured the other team has just figured out exactly how to stop them. And there's very little that they can do to, you know, to adjust to it because they just don't have the personnel to be different. Yeah. It seems like basketball or the NBA at least is, is so much more different than any other sport between the regular season and the playoffs. And I think it's, I mean, look at something like ESPN's NBA BPI. I think last year, didn't they have, the warrior the warriors is like the fourth most likely team to yeah. win the nba finals going into the playoffs and and the cavs were like a 1% chance and a lot of people gave them crap for that and i mean i would say yeah, deservedly so because the numbers deserved, don't pass yeah. the eye test and and right now i'm i'm looking at their projections now they have milwaukee is 39.7% to win the nba title and golden state is 21.3% 
Um, I'm not sure what the odds are out there, but I'm guessing Golden State's the favorite, right? Yeah, by yeah. far. I mean that that's saying that you could buy Golden, you could almost sell two um, Golden States. Sorry, you could buy two Golden States to sell one Milwaukee, which I would do every day, fifty times over. So what what are they not accounting for? And I think if you talk to to the guys there, they would probably tell you that there there's stuff that you know these things are real that they're not able to they're not accounting for. But what I mean, they they are probably well, doing I mean, like, different things also. And this is just one of them. And it's what are they? So here's, you know, here's, I, a, here's a few things that I think they're not accounting for. I remember a lot in the past with the Cleveland stuff, they didn't account for the fact that Cleveland's rotations change in the, in right. the playoffs. I, I think and, they're doing that now. Okay. The, the change in minutes. Well, so they, they didn't do that in the past. And the other thing is that there's definitely this notion that I think has proven true that. LeBron in the playoffs, his teams tend to play much better defense because he plays better defense and he tries harder, which is like he does not try on the defensive end. There's many times in the regular season that he does not try on the defensive end, and it's very obvious, and it makes the defense. Now, the difference between him trying and him not trying on the defensive end is such a big delta that it can make a huge difference in this. In terms of like what they're not doing, I would guess that they're not, you know, the, the Warriors didn't play the regular didn't play there were a lot of times in the regular season that they did not play like an elite team they played like an okay team and they they got blown out i mean they lost to the phoenix suns who were arguably the worst team one of the worst teams in the nba they they lost to them is so, this sort of the and Milwaukee, sorry god sorry i was going to say is this sort of the equivalent of of you know the red sox and chris sale he's throwing like 90 miles an hour right now because they want to preserve him like less effort so that he can be healthy and come September and October when they're at the playoffs. Cause they know that they're very likely going to make the playoffs. So they would like, you know, that's what, that's what they need to be peaking in the playoffs. Yeah. There's definitely some similarities there because the warriors will literally just bench guys in certain games. They'll sit guys, they'll limit minutes. Um, yeah. It's, it's definitely not sample set to build a model for the playoffs from. And, and that's the problem that BPI is probably experiencing. Now, that's not completely their fault because they can only do what data they ha- They can only use what data they have in front of them, but they do need to try to maybe adjust for that if they're going to make odds for the playoffs, right? So is anybody with a analytical NBA model kind of shit out of luck here or in terms of being able to quantify this stuff? Or, you know, I think it's hard. I I mean, I don't know if they're shit out of luck. I think there's probably ways to do it because you can probably limit sample size and, you know, look, look at ratings. You know, it's just, it's just the same stuff you do in football where you try to figure out the impact of different players when different players get injured. You would rather have a larger sample size to make this assessment, but you can get some directional signal from you know limiting sample size and isolating situations so you can isolate different variables and impacts people like i mean i'm not an nba expert at all and i don't have a model on this but but to me it seems like maybe looking at sort of late game crunch time when you know that both teams are going to be trying their hardest and lebron will be playing defense and sort of seeing how how much you know i almost said the Cavs. um i mean it doesn't really matter because lebron's on the playoffs 
and the, the Lakers are not in the playoffs. Um, but sort of seeing that sort of delta between how those players play in that particular situation, um, high leverage situation versus, you know, all other situations. But then you do have an issue with the fact that the other team's players are also going to be trying harder too. So I think it's, it's maybe it's not even the Delta thing. You only, you know, because as you said, there's more of a, a Delta with LeBron than some of these other players, like a, your average role player is going to be probably giving this about the same effort, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I probably, but again, like it's just really hard to know. It's like a very, it's a very nuanced conversation. Like, this is definitely an art, not a science kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, that, that's sports betting in general, or sports analytics in general. It's it's an art with empirical foundations, or, or you're te- you're trying to empirically test s- some sort of art. I don't know. I'm vomiting out words right now. All right. Well, this this seems like a good time to end our ad hoc um, podcast following up the masters, etc., and then giving you a little bit of NBA fodder. So maybe next week we can come back with a podcast about the whole sports betting model. And maybe we can get Ted on to do that. I would love to have Ted again. And yeah, although I wasn't on last time and it was the best podcast we've ever done. <laughs> Addition by subtraction. Let's let's get Ted on next time. So we'll talk to him. And we'll talk to you guys all maybe next week. Simulator system to break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppet teaser but the end just running off a leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year. They just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the information turn and lose it better into